Hi-ho, Chad here. Another disclaimer this week. No racism uh, this time, as far as I know, I think. But uh, again, I have the same problem with my audio. Uh, I checked. Next week, it's fine. I I guess I caught it by next week. But uh, you're going to hear my voice kind of coming in and out, peaking a little bit. Uh, It's going to sound kind of weird. Stick with it if you can. If you can't, no hard feelings. All right. So, uh, yeah. But no racism this week. Promise. Later. Uh, uh, Listen, girls. Uh, You're not allowed backstage during the show. Oh, it's okay. We got passes. Yeah. Yeah. Passes? We don't give out passes. I'll say you don't give them out, frog. (laughs) Yeah, they cost us a bundle. (laughs) Wait a minute. Who could be selling backstage passes around here? 28, 29 bucks. Scooter. Yeah, boss? Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, do you like babies? So that's a, that's an interesting question. In theory, yeah, no, I'm great with kids. Um, but like babies? Yeah, babies are awesome, just not Muppet babies. Well, Muppet babies are cool too, but like <laughs> Uncanny Valley Muppet babies are a different issue. See, I don't really like babies. I liked my kids when they were babies <laughs> and like my nephew, uh-huh. but uh, in general, they're just kind of a pain. I feel like there's you're never going to get a more genuine interaction with someone than you do with a baby, because if a baby is overstimulated, they look away. And if a baby likes you, then they're going to smile. And if a baby doesn't like you, then they're going to start crying or they're going to reach for someone else. It's very straightforward. This is a fetal lunatic daring where a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started talking about a couple of episodes of The Muppet Show, we'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are getting to the end. Yeah, it's, it's pretty close, isn't it? Yeah, this is 319 and 320, just four more episodes to go. We are already at the end of another season. You, you starting to work on your list in your head? Oh, it's been it's been rolling the entire time. We had kind of a rough week last episode. Not the best episode. Well, one one real bad episode. There's one episode that I hope they don't top. <laughs> That's fair. And one that was just a little underwhelming. I think we had a little bit of a bounce back this week. Yeah, it's like a return to normalcy. Yeah, so let's uh, let's get started. Let's get things started. Elka Summer? 15 seconds to curtain, Miss Summer? What'd you think about Elka Summer? I liked her, actually. Um, I wasn't... I She's one of those Muppet guests that I have no concept of outside of the show, but I liked her. Actress, model, singer, painter, and all-around entertainer Elka von Schletz was born November 5th, 1940 in Berlin, Germany, right in the middle of World War II and the Third Reich. When she was two, her father, a Lutheran minister evacuated the family to to Niederndorf, a small town in Bavaria. She attended a prep school in nearby Franconia. Uh, her father died when she was 14. After she graduated, she moved to the UK and worked as an au pair. She did that to make a living, but also to help her perfect her English. While she was on vacation in Italy, she was discovered by legendary Italian neorealist filmmaker Vittorio De Sica in 1958, and he started putting her in films. Around then is when she picked up the surname Summer over Schlitz. She also became a pinup girl and a sex symbol and posed in Playboy in 1964 and 1967. 
The 60s were really good for her. She had a role in the Pink Panther sequel, A Shot in the Dark. Uh, And that same year, she made The Prize, where she starred alongside Paul Newman and Edward G. Robinson. Uh, She won a Golden Globe for that one. She did several other films with actors like James Garner and Dick Van Dyke. She had an uncredited appearance in the 1967 comedy version of Casino Royale. She did talk show appearances. And like so many of our guests, Hollywood Squares. In the 70s, she did the thriller Zeppelin with Michael York. Uh, a remake of an Agatha Christie murder mystery and two of films for Italian horror maestro, Mario Bava, Baron blood and Lisa and the devil. She did a few more films. Her last big one being 1979's the prisoner of Zenda, which reunited her with her shot in the dark co-star Peter Sellers. She actually has a ton of acting credits, but very few big films. Most of them I've never heard of. And Nick, I've heard of a lot of films. Uh, After that, she pretty much retired from acting to concentrate on painting. She also, let's see, she also recorded and released several albums. She had a long-running feud with fellow European actress Zsa Gabor, which ended in a big libel settlement for Summer. She's been married twice and has been with her current husband since 1993. She is 81 and lives in Los Angeles. I'm imagining her feuding with uh, Zsa Gabor looking something like Death Becomes Her, which probably isn't a charitable thought, but it's an interesting one. The Muppet Show episode 319 with special guest star Elka Summer. Produced December of 1978, premiered early the next year, directed by Peter Harris. Uh, thank you, Scooter. Uh, listen, I hate to complain, but <clears throat> there's a man eating my makeup table. And there is a man eating her makeup table. And Scooter assures her that should not be happening. Fred, you're supposed to eat the wardrobe. <laughs> Sorry. Scooter's in rare form this week, too, on this episode and the next one. He's awful. Oh, yeah. Some of our theories are going to come true in this episode. Some of our long-running theories about certain <laughs> characters, specifically Scooter, have some payoffs this week, I think. Oh, we need to talk about Beaker in a minute, but yeah, I love Beaker. We'll, we'll get to Beaker. Beaker. We'll get to Beaker. We have our opening theme, and then uh, at the end of it, Gonzo basically, out of his trumpet comes what looks to be the Concord. I was about to say, there was like a, a famous airplane-centered movie or maybe airport-centered movie in the 70s, wasn't there? Airport 75, I think it's called. That's the one I was thinking of, yeah. Yeah, this looks like the Concorde. It just comes out and it smashes into the balcony. Off-screen, though, because you know that would have been expensive. Kermit comes out with a great line. He says, uh... Hi-ho! Kermit the Frog here! And this is a Muppet Show, and you have been warned. <laughs> that was such a nice touch. And then he introduces us to Bobby Benson's Baby Band. Singing Pennsylvania 65000, which was a big Glenn Miller, big band orchestra hit. to hear me say this chad chad yeah this is nightmare fuel there you go <laughs> these babies are rough man so here's the thing because i saw stuff like demonic toys and stuff when i was way too young to see it that's always going to be seared in into my brain what i wasn't expecting was the like the blonde topped baby with the ukulele reminding me of a different source of nightmare fuel that was actually vaguely age appropriate and i'm thinking specifically of who framed roger rabbit and specifically Christopher Lloyd's role in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, because the second that hat comes off, and you see that weird, like, curly tuft on top, it just Uh, becomes more terrifying. And that baby was sitting right there, bashing into the other ones, and I was worried. I was going to say, when he reveals himself to Roger, 
Yeah. Remember me, Eddie? When I killed your brother, I talked just like Terrifying. <laughs> exactly. But that like, movie's terrifying. All of these babies are still soft spot on top of head young. So I'm just like, you shouldn't be bashing it. This is very upsetting. Yeah, they're very violent with each other. Oh, yeah. And I mean, to be fair, my brothers and I did fight a lot. So what I can tell you, first of all, is this is the 70s because we got a puppet with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth for the entire song. (laughs) In a room full of babies (laughs) that he's very proud of. And I just want Bobby Benson to be the non-smoking model for so many parents in these things. Because so many kids are like, or so many parents are like Homer Simpson. They're just like, I'm stuck with kids. Whereas this guy is like, these kids are going to make me money. I don't know how I had so many in such short order. He does. There's an uncomfortable question about how he had so many kids and why they have so many different hair colors. But, you know. Or where he got them from. Right. They might not all um, be his. They might not be. I don't know. They're his now. But but I just, I love Bobby Benson's look. I love the sunglasses with the dangling cigarette the entire time. It's sort of like the, uh, I'm forgetting the guy's name from the Sex and Violence special, one of the original hosts. We've barely seen him again, but he also had like the glasses, like cool guy look thing going. They also sort of stick around because we, like, we didn't even make it past the intro. Those, there was a... A baby in the box with Statler and Waldorf, wasn't there? Uh, we're going to see that. Actually, that happens after this. Hmm. Yeah, that happens after. But yeah, Statler and Waldorf have a baby in the box that they say is Statler's uh, grandson. And he's a little smartass and he's really funny. It tracks. Is it your kid? Of course not. I'm just babysitting. This is my grandson. Well, there is a resemblance. Yeah, but I won't be bought in two flicks forever. That's pretty good. I like the baby in the balcony. Um, Then we go backstage and... uh. Bunsen's looking for Beaker, Nick. <laughs> he just can't I, find him. On one hand, I want to wrap Beaker in a blanket and just get him out of there. On the yeah. other hand, there is a trope called lampshading things where you literally cover something in a lampshade to draw attention to it while trying to make it seem sort of concealed. And I just wanted Beaker to get a break. Or is he just the original party animal? I think animal's the original party animal. Can't find Beaker. Why would... What, what cause would Beaker have? To hide from Bunsen Honeydew. Um, post-traumatic stress? That's exactly what I wrote down here. <laughs> the Beaker <laughs> has finally said, I'm, I can't do it anymore. Also, they're testing the diesel-powered shaver. Yeah, yeah, he, he knows what's in store that day. <laughs> it's like, I will not, not today. What do we say to the god of death? Not today. It's just a bad time to start manscaping. It's just like, and you know that that's exactly what Benson would have wanted to do. So, 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 so Beaver is hiding under a lampshade while Beaker, while Bunsen is looking for him and Beaker. Then we get a great moment where Bunsen leaves looking for Beaker and Beaker lifts up the lampshade and he's like, Ooh, okay. Got out of that. And he sees Beauregard coming. He puts a lampshade back on, but I'm like, you're not hiding from Bo. What's the problem? And then Bo. Okay. Then Bo plugs him in and there's a joke where Beaker gets electrocuted. But here's the thing. Where's the other end of the plug? I imagine Pete or Beaker's hair is like somehow caught in the, the fixture or something. Yes, but but he plugs him in. But where's the other end of the plug? But it's funny because since Be- Beauregard plugs it in, it sends Beaker flying and running and he ends up running by Kermit on stage. <laughs> I think Kermit even says he's like. Uh, okay, owing to the unfortunate cancellation of Muppet Lab. <laughs> with the fact that the furniture is taking over the show. Uh, it's around this time that I start to wonder why I do it. 
There is a reason, of course, and here it is. We now turn over our stage to the lovely and talented Miss Alka Summer. Kermit's having a rough couple of weeks. So then we get uh, Miss Summer's first number. So I I had basically two notes on this. Well, first, go ahead and introduce what the, the number is. So it's a song called Animal Crackers in My Soup, which is an old song from a, like a 1935 Shirley Temple movie. It's the type of song that, you know, little girl Shirley Temple would, would sing. Elka first comes out as like a little girl character, kind of a Shirley Temple-like character, and sings a song in a way that made my wife go, what the hell is this? Animal crackers in my soup. Monkeys and rabbits loop the loop. Gosh, oh gee, but I have fun swallowing animals one by one. Kermit comes out and stops it and said, "Hey, hey, hey um, uh, you're you're a great singer and a, and yeah. a terrific performer, and Thank uh, you. But, but you see, this this whole little girl look just yeah. isn't right for this show." But why, Kermit? I mean, it's such a cute little show with little piggies and little darkies and not even mention little froggies. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, but you see, we're trying to appeal to adults. I mean, uh, we're, we're very suave, sophisticated duckies and piggies and froggies. Oh, gee. Yeah, well, gee, I got the whole thing all wrong. And so she attempts to do the number again. But here she is now, the wonderful Miss Alka Summer. Animal crackers in my soup Monkeys and rabbits loop the loop And now she's in basically like a skin-tight Marilyn Monroe sequin dress and she sings a ridiculously sophisticated, sexy version of Animal Crackers in My Soup. So then Kermit comes and interrupts her again. Wasn't that sophisticated enough? I gave it everything I had. Uh, yeah, but? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, that's true. Uh, but it's just, it's just. Well, it's not the way that uh, we would do it. I mean, you people. Mm-hmm. Well, how would you people do it then? And she goes, "Yeah, that's why I'm here." And then Kermit has my favorite line of the episode, which is, "Well, would you like to do it our way?" Sure, we'd like to do it your way. That's what I'm here for. Oh wow, uh, brave girl. <laughs> yeah, I love that too. <laughs> then we close the curtains again. And we come back and we have two boss man puppets and the body of a boss man with Elkie's head on top of it. And they sing the song. It's it's basically the chili down bit from Labyrinth. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm uh, here to do her first number for the third time. <laughs> Elka Summer! In every bowl of soup I see Lions and tigers watching me I make them jump right through a hoop Those animal crackers in my soup Like everything yes. about the way that it's shot and the It way that looks their limbs very move. much like Labyrinth Then I bite him in a million bits And I gobble them right down when they're inside me where it's dark I walk around like Noah's Ark I stuff my tummy like a goof With animal crackers in my soup It hit its mark. Like, it it was a three-part thing. They went too high, too, or sorry, too low, too high, and then somewhere off to the left. And that's about the way a Muppet sketch should go. So after, after her number, Beauregard and Beaker, who are now a team all of a sudden. Now, I question... I'm going to question Kermit's leadership skills. He's putting Bo and Beaker in front of set design. Here's the thing. Bo is very efficient at doing specific things. 
One may say he's single-minded. That That's a generous way to describe it, yes. Beaker is everyone's favorite canary in a coal mine. Granted, he doesn't do much more than chirp. Either of these people would do much better with a different Muppet. <laughs> yes. But together, I'm not so sure. I'm going to argue they do a really good job. Up to a point. When we get to it, they do a really good job. Yeah, you get a sinking so, feeling after a certain point, but yeah. So listen, now you two are going to build a set for Elkie's closing number, huh? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. What kind of number is it? Uh, well, it's a, it's a spectacular tribute to ancient Egypt, so the set really has to be impressive. Oh, you come to the right people. You just tell me and Beaker what you want. Uh, okay, well, I, I want a, a royal barge and a sphinx, and uh, don't forget the pyramids. Oh, sure, pyramids. Mm-hmm. But what shape do you want them? So then we get something new. Pigs in Space, part one of two. I wasn't expecting you to get a part two either, because they'll always sort of trail off to, work, to what you're supposed to expect next week. So it was, a, it was an interesting surprise. So the swine trick is landing on, this is a little crossover for us, because we've never seen this before. The swine trick is landing on Coosbane. And uh, Link makes a very smooth landing until he doesn't. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I love it, though. He makes his landing to land on the planet. He turns off the engines, and then like a few beats later, he actually hits. They actually land. And uh, in this scene, uh, Link will be played by Neil Armstrong, while Piggy will be played by Buzz Aldrin. Strange Pork lets Link know that the first one that goes out that door will be the first pig on Coosbane, and they're going to be like the most famous pig that ever lived. And when you tell Miss Piggy that they're, she's going to be the most famous pig that ever lived, her ears perk up. Um, um, why don't I just uh, step out and see if it is safe for my capitan? Oh, that's very thoughtful of you, first mate Piggy. Uh-huh. No, Link, no. Then she'll be the first pig on the planet Coosbane and get all the glory. Oh, 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 you're right. Oh, stop. He's like, no, I'm going to go out of here. And she, he ends up um, trying to break down the door of their ship. And then he goes flying out onto Coosbane. I feel like one of the first things that you should be able to do as captain of a ship is open doors on the ship. <laughs> it is funny because he's like... They're like, no, Link, maybe he's trying because he's trying to push the door out. And they're and Strange Pork's an idiot because he's like, no, maybe it opens in. And Piggy's like, it obviously slides, you idiots. I'm like, of course it slides. We've seen you guys go in and out of these doors a dozen times. I love the idea of Strange Pork knowing full well that it slides and knowing that Link doesn't know that. <laughs> but uh, so this is part one and it ends with Link taking his first giant leap for pork kind. Piggy really wanted to be the first, though. He just sort of slides into it. Slips into it. <laughs> it's a, it's good. It's a good uh, performance by Jim too. When his legs kick up as he flies. Oh yeah, that air. was great. Our UK spot. Uh, yeah, we get more Bobby Benson's Baby Band. Just another number. Same set, same setup. A little less violent. They play um, Tuxedo Junction, which was a 1939 orchestral piece or whatever. It was a big band, another big band piece. Uh, it was another Glenn Miller big band piece, actually. And this was a, you know, this was a kind of a standard UK spot. It's like, let's use, not a standard one. It's kind of like, there are some UK spots that are like this, where they're like, hey, let's use this thing that we had already set up for this episode and record the UK spot with it. Yeah. It felt it felt like filler. Yeah. I, I mean, I was watching that baby to see if it was going to commit violence, but outside of that, it was fine. So then we uh, get back to uh, Pigs in Space. And now part two of Pigs in Space. As you may recall, the spaceship was landing on the planet Coosbane, and Link Hogthrob was taking his giant leap for swine kind. 
Uh, greetings from Coosbane. It's kind of spooky. So they get, so they get, they step out of the thing, and Link is like hamming it up for the camera until Piggy tells him that the camera was damaged on landing, so they don't have a camera for him to stay back home. So he's like, "Fine, let's get out." He's the worst explorer ever because she's like, "There's oh, no yeah, camera." No. He's like, "All right, I'm out of here." I had two notes. One was because there's like they're looking for life. They they can't find life, right? But it's a breathable breathable yeah. atmosphere. Like they're not out there with helmets or any sort of oxygen supply. So what's producing the oxygen? Well, it turns out there are living creatures. It's true. The hills are alive. So Piggy informs him they have to stick around to to determine any signs of life. And Strangeport's like, "Nah, I did my sense." Strangeport has terrible instruments apparently because his sensors told him. No signs of life, and they just bail. And then it turns out that the hills they're standing on are named George and Martha. But the best moment is when Link jumps into Piggy's arms. Oh yeah, going to get scared <laughs> again. You see his legs up in her up in her arms. Link's airborne a lot this episode. <laughs> so then we get a scene kind of weirdly between Elke and, Elke and uh, Gonzo. Yeah, they're for you. Oh, vielen herzlichen Dank. Das ist sehr sehr lieb von Ihnen. Grazie mille e molto gentile di lei. Lovely. Say, how many languages do you speak? Oh, about uh, six. <gasps> That's amazing. I thought this was a nice one. We've been kind of touch and go with Piggy for the last few episodes, and this is classic, or classic, classicist. <laughs> it's classicist Piggy. Piggy. It's a classicist. It's it's classicist Piggy. She's it's you know it's her from her Sophocles days. Elka's talking to Gonzo about well speaking a lot of different languages, and I'm jealous because I would like to do that. No, not really. You have people in your show who speak several languages. We do? Sure. How about the Swedish chef? Oh, yeah. How about him? <laughs> well, doesn't he speak English and Swedish? Well, I don't think so. You mean then he's not bilingual? I think the Swedish chef is non-lingual. He speaks mock languages. And then, um, uh, but th- and then Gonzo drops. There is another person in your show who speaks another language. That's Mademoiselle Piggy, who speaks French not half bad. Oh, well, look, let me tell you a secret. Uh-huh. What, what? The only French she knows is what she's read off a perfume label. Of course, right on cue, Piggy comes in and they put that to the test. And it turns out that Piggy does only know. Uh, Elkie hits her with little French and Piggy just goes, <laughs> May we? Which is like the easiest thing to do. <laughs> I think I, my, my French is very, very minimal, but I think that she literally asked if Piggy speaks French because parlez-vous means do you speak mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. Enchanté. Mademoiselle Piggy, vous parlez français, hein? C'est formidable. Mais je suis tellement heureuse à pouvoir parler français avec quelqu'un. C'est une langue formidable. Vous ne pensez pas? Maybe this bottle of perfume will help. And then she doesn't know what to say, and Gonzo says, Hey, Miss Piggy, here's this perfume bottle. <laughs> you want a dick. <laughs> oh, it's so and, great. Uh, and they have a good laugh. They have a good laugh out of it. That Elka attempts to speak uh, pig. <laughs> now, is Piggy embarrassed that she speaks pig? She kind of seems to be. I think Piggy might not speak pig either. I think that Piggy just liked the idea of both her and Elka getting in on Gonzo. But the thing is, there's a look of fear that Gonzo gets in this section when he knows that piggy is about to go off which we don't usually <laughs> see usually he's excited because he hasn't been touched but like in this case he's like oh wait this might hurt these two people are laughing at miss piggy how's this scene gonna end <laughs> so right. one way people are getting thumped now we have visually my favorite moment of the episode where beaker and beauregard are, are starting to build the set and beaker's holding the nail beauregard's got the hammer and every time Bo goes to hit the hammer beaker pulls it away <laughs> oh yeah and the 
Because he's so shell-shocked. But, like, Beaker is just doing that look like, I'm not going to put... Th-. It's not even Lucy in the football. It's just like... Or, uh, yeah, I think it was Lucy in the football. Yeah, Lucy. He, no, it's not that. He's just scared. He's not he even can't scared. Bring himself to do it. I would argue that he's not scared. I would say that he's actually just like, screw you. Because there's the, oh, please don't hurt my hand. And there's like, I'm not going to let you do this. And Beaker is looking Beauregard dead on and moving his hand every single time. See, I think it's reflective. I think Probably. He just, he's been hurt so many times. He just can't keep his hand there. And he's trying. <laughs> but every time he's just like, nope. The worst part is Beaker still gets hit. He's doing <laughs> nothing he wrong. No, but Bo, Bo, well, one thing he does wrong, Bo asks him, says, okay, I'm going to nail it. You watch me closely. Beaker gets right in the way of the hammer. <laughs> yeah. And then my but, favorite line was, can't you watch closely from further away? <laughs> I was like, yeah. And then um, he does go further away and Bo loses the hammer and manages to hit him again, which you see coming. Mm-hmm. Then we get a very bizarre wild, wide world of Muppet sports. <laughs> Where? The sport is goldfish shooting. Tonight, the finals of the all-nations goldfish shooting contest. On my left, the contender. Allow me to wish you luck, sir. Luck? Ha! I don't need no luck. He ain't gonna have a chance. Missed. Guess it's a little less sporting than fish in a barrel. Probably, but also, would you want to be standing that close to it? Because that that bowl shouldn't live through that or last through that. What kind of gauge is he using in that shotgun? Where not only does he miss the fish in the fish bowl, but it doesn't shatter the fish bowl. I think the other end of that shotgun is hooked to a hookah. Because we just get smoke at the <laughs> like nothing goes in there, and the fish spits at him. He accidentally grabbed his bong rifle. <laughs> It's funny though, because it, it looks it looks like it's going to be horrifying. Because he's just like, yeah, no, I'm gonna. There's a goldfish bowl and a goldfish. He just puts a shotgun in the water, and you're like, this is terrible. My kids were like, what's going? My kids were like, oh my god, and then he just misses. And we're backstage again, and uh, Kermit's talking to Bo about the sets, and the sets aren't done yet. They're like pretty much done, but they still need painted. And um, he says, well, I sent off Beaker. To go get a to go get a power saw. We say keep calling it a power saw, but it's totally just a chainsaw, right? Mm-hmm. And this is when Bo has the great line where he goes, "Why well, sent Beaker?" And Kermit goes, "Beaker's dumber than you are." And Bo goes, "He is not." Beaker is not dumber than Beauregard. <laughs> he's traumatized, but he's not dumber than Beauregard. <laughs> and um, and then Beaker comes running in like Leatherface. Oh man, with a chainsaw, just blazing, through, just running through the scene, just having everybody sending everybody running. Completely out of control with a chainsaw. Which is probably set to happen eventually. Then we get our closing number with Elkie playing Cleopatra, where her her and uh, Animal and uh, a bunch of, let's be clear here, a bunch of slaves yeah. sing a song called Row, 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 which is a 1912 song from Ziegfeld Follies. So, I mean, they are slaves. <laughs> there's <laughs> that. That wasn't what caught my attention for this song, because we mentioned earlier that in certain contexts, Animal Crackers becomes a particularly dirty song. The song was written in 1912, right? Yes. The song is absolutely filthy. I loved it for that reason, but I was not <laughs> expecting that. <laughs> I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I was like, okay, so this is just a sequence of events. Young Johnny Jonesy had a cute little boat And all the girlies he would take for a float He had girlies on the shore Sweet little peaches by the score 
But Johnny was a Weisenheimer, you know His steady girl was Flo And every Sunday afternoon To jump in his boat and they would spoon And then he'd row, row, row Way up the river he would row, row, row Yeah, and then of course, and the joke is while they're singing it But here's what I say Beaker and Bunsen put together a pretty impressive looking set. It doesn't, like you said, it does sink at the end. <laughs> they're rushing. It's um, but while they're singing the, the thing, Beauregard's coming into the. He's interrupting the number, trying to repair it and trying to paint it and stuff. And there's a great moment where he gets caught in the shot and then he starts pretending to row. <laughs> nope, I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be here. And animals. Uh, I, I, the only part that I found like not distasteful but a little weird was animals pounding the drum, telling the slaves to row faster, row faster. And I'm like, oh, that's really what would have happened to you. Yeah, I don't think Animal had a full grasp of the situation though. I think he just—it's sort of like bringing in Harry and saying like, we need to blow up this building. He's not going to ask what's in the building. He's just going to yeah. know that he gets to blow something up. I just wrote down this was must be what it's like to work at Amazon. That's all. <laughs> um, oh. Timely. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I know. So I don't know. A fun musical number. Uh ending with a with a very predictable sinking. I don't think she doesn't have like the best voice. But then again, she's not sad in her, in her native tongue. I think she she did exactly what she was supposed to do on this episode. I think she was very well implemented. Um and then Kermit comes to say goodbye, but they are interrupted. Kermit and Elka come out to say goodbye, but they are interrupted by uh Beaker with a chainsaw. <laughs> So, Chad, I know throughout the course of us working on this podcast that I have made some random and sometimes quasi-predictable associations with outside media. Case in point, I could probably draw a comparison between Beaker and American Psycho, because Beaker is... Honestly, the Swedish chef makes more sense as Patrick Bateman. That's a separate conversation. (laughs) The thing is, my connection here was not with American Psycho. It was, appropriate for the season with the movie Scrooged, and specifically Bobcat Goldwaite's entire section of him running through that office space trying to kill Bill Murray. Yes, the joke is that Beaker's out of control running around with his chainsaw, but what if he's not? (laughs) That's my question. What if he's in complete control? He's just decided, at the very least, he's going to scare the shit out of these people. I don't think he's in complete control. I think he's making the best of a bad time, because it's Beaker, so he's not... Like, if he actually wanted to do this, it would blow up in his face. But since he's probably glued to that chainsaw with whatever's left of that adhesive adhesive from the Gilder Adner episode... All I wanted was an internship! Well, the other thing is... Just I wanted know college s- credit! What do you mean this internship isn't paid? Also, somewhere in the back of Beaker's mind, I know he's thinking, the second I let go of this chainsaw, I'm going to lose a leg. Because I will try to get rid of it responsibly, and it will not matter, since it's the Muppet Show. Yeah, I, I, I like this one. It was Especially after last week, it was a nice bounce back. Alright, it was a solid one. So, Nick, I know you haven't seen Rocky, so I'm going to assume you're a communist. Uh, my dad would hate America? the same thing. I don't hate America. I think you can do better. But I uh, I probably saw the first Rocky when I was it, it was Rocky. Came, the first Rocky came out the year I was born. Uh, one best picture that year. So Rocky's been like part of my life forever. But uh, tell me a little bit about Sly Stallone, not to be confused with Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, no. Very different. Very different things. <laughs> You want me to stay, I'll be around today to be available for you to see. I'm about to go and then 
Michael Sylvester Gardenzio Stallone was born in Hulk's Kitchen to Frank Stallone Sr., who was a hairdresser and beautician, and Jackie Stallone, knee Labafish, who was an astrologer, a dancer, and a promoter of women's wrestling. His younger brother is named Frank Jr. Within that first bullet point, I have an entire sitcom pitch. What's your pitch? Dad is a hairdresser and beautician in the 50s, or in the 40s, and mom is an astrologer, dancer, and promoter of women's wrestling. See, when you said he was born in Hell's Kitchen, I wanted you to tell me that his dad was a, a deadbeat boxer who was supposed to take a fall and didn't and then was killed for it. That's the first place my mind wanted to go. But honestly, associating Matt Murdock with Stallone, is it just feels weird. He did play Judge Dredd. That's a very different character. <laughs> that is a fundamentally a different very, character. I'm sorry. I'm getting way ahead. <laughs> During birth, obstetricians had to use two pairs of forceps on Sylvester and in doing so they accidentally severed a nerve causing paralysis in parts of his face specifically the lower left side this is where he got his look his look and his particular type of speech he was bullied because of this because kids and as a result he started getting super into bodybuilding and acting his family moved around a bit and it was when I was looking at the bio it was a little unclear of when they went from point A to point B but they would eventually move to D- Washington DC because his dad in the fifties, because his dad wanted to open a beauty school and his mom opened a woman's gym called Barbella's. He went to Lincoln high in Philadelphia, as well as Charlotte, uh, Charlotte hall military Academy. And then he would later attend Miami Dade college. His, his college career is a little bit spotty from there. He goes to American college of Switzerland from 1965 to 1967. He goes back to Miami to study drama. And then from 1967 to 69, he bills himself as Mike Stallone up until 1970, at which point he starts calling himself Sylvester. His first starring role is in a movie called The Party at Kitty and Studs, 1970, which is softcore porn. Um, yep. <laughs> he did. He got paid $200 for two days' work. Uh, he would later explain that he was completely desperate. He'd been sleeping at the Port Authority bus terminal for three weeks. Um, the film would be re-released Years later, as the Italian stallion, stallion. trying to <laughs> cash in on his Rocky fame, which we'll get to in just a second. He also starred in an erotic off-Broadway stage play called Score in 1971. When he moved to New York uh, as something out of a Bon Jovi song, uh, his girlfriend and later wife, Sasa, I, I hope I don't mispronounce her last name, Zach, supports him and herself because she's also an aspiring actress by being a waitress. And... Sylvester worked odd jobs, cleaning out stables at the zoo. He worked as a movie theater usher until he got fired for scalping tickets. Um, he also started frequenting <laughs> the local library and trying to improve his writing at this point in time. He, gave, he became in, particularly interested in Edgar Allan Poe. He tried and failed to be an extra in The Godfather, which I haven't seen The Godfather either, but it does seem like he'd be kind of perfect for it. Uh, he gets a background role in What's Up, Doc, uh, which we discussed on the Madeline Kahn episode. And the less said about that, the better. It's one of the few movies I, I truly can't stand. Uh, not his fault. He starred in... So he's got a lot of movie credits. I'm going to gloss over some of them. He was in No Place to Hide in 1973, which is noteworthy because it was re-edited in 1990 and sort of redubbed into a parody of itself called A Man Called Rainbow. He had a series of minor roles in the early 70s. He was uncredited. He was in the film version of MASH. He was uncredited. Uh, rumor has it he was also in Mandingo, but the scenes were cut. I don't know if that's true. 
he had support roles in Death Race 2000, Capone, and uh, he had a guest role on Kojak in 1975. That same year, he would marry his girlfriend, Sasha, who had been helping to support him. And then 1976 is going to be a big year for, for Sylvester. So Stallone wrote the script for Rocky after seeing the Muhammad Ali Weppner fight, and he wrote this over the course of three days. I don't know how long it usually takes to write a feature-length screenplay. I usually stick to prose, but I imagine that's pretty quick. It's pretty quick. He would subsequently deny that the Wegner fight was any influence. Excuse me, the Wepner. Wepner fight was any influence. And Wepner files a lawsuit against him, and they end up settling out of court. Another thing, and this is something that I think is pretty widely known, I've, I haven't seen the movie, and I've heard this a few times, he took a budget cut on the movie in order to be the star in it. Uh, he would be nominated for 10 Oscars in 1977. He was offered six figures for people to buy Rocky and put other stars in it, right? Like they wanted to put Robert Redford in it. They wanted to put Paul Newman. They wanted to put like a big movie star in it. And he was offered as a screenwriter, like you said, he was broke as shit on the outs and he still would not sell the script unless they agreed to let him star in it because he knew that it was the type of vehicle that could make his career. I respect the hell out of that. Um, I, I'm really big on creative integrity, and that's kind of a shining example of that. He would have his directorial debut in 1978 in a movie called Paradise Valley. In 79, he directs and stars in Rocky II. In 81, he blo- he injures his hand, and he's good, he gets a couple of injuries during the course of his career, but he injures his hand blocking a shot from Pele in a movie called Escape to Victory. In 1981, he plays against Rutger Hauer in a movie called Nighthawks. 82, we get First Blood, uh, which is the first Rambo movie for anyone paying attention, which I also haven't seen any Rambo movies, but I did play the Genesis game for Rambo 3 a lot, so if that counts for something. I've also seen Hot Shots and Hot Shots Part 2. Rocky 3 is released the same year. In 1983, he directed Staying Alive, which was the sequel to Saturday Night Fever, and it's the (laughs) only movie that he has directed that he did not star in. Uh, he co-wrote it's and starred alongside. Yeah, that's what I've heard. It's real bad. Did not do well at all. Wait till you get to Rhinestone. I was actually just going to that. Uh, co-starred in or co-wrote and starred alongside Dolly Parton in Rhinestone. But wiser, you created a monster, and they call him Frankenstein. And the tavern down the street is a laboratory. Where he makes the transformation all the time. And a shine of Dr. Bud is a pint of monster blood. And it does affect me different every time. But Wather, you created a monster. And they call me Wiggenstein. In 1985, we get Rocky IV and Rambo, and in, on the set of Rocky IV, he ends up getting hospitalized because he asks Dolph Lundgren to hit him. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Yeah, he goes full Tyler Durden. He's like, I want you to hit me as hard as I can. And Dolph Lundgren's like, yeah, I've got daddy issues. Okay. And he hospitalized him. Yeah. I must break you. Oh, man. Did you find any research about how many how many roids they were on in that movie? Um, I'm kind of afraid to. <laughs> he would become a boxing promoter in the 1980s as well. And then the 90s sort of hits a couple of rough patches. Uh, he begins with Rocky V. I don't know how that does 
in retrospect, but at the time it didn't do particularly well. It's terrible. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, 93, we get Cliffhanger and one of my personal favorite movies, Demolition Man, which doesn't necessarily make it a good movie, but I think it probably ages pretty well. In 1995, Stallone was in Judge Dredd. He would also be in Assassins with Julianne Moore and Antonio Banderas. I did see that movie. I remember liking it. I'm not sure how it ages. Uh, I'll just go through a, a list of different roles. Assassins. Assassins written by the Wachowskis. Really? Yep. I had no idea. Yep. It was the first screenplay they ever sold. Nice. He would also... So there are a number of roles that I'm going to gloss over because Stallone is... He's a working man, and he's done a lot. He would be in Ants, uh, which I only mentioned because that's one of his movies that I've actually seen. He would come back to the role of Rocky Balboa in Rocky Balboa in 2006. In 2008, he would reprise his role as, his role as Rambo. And then in 2009, in what would be the biggest opening weekend of his career, he was in a movie called The Expendables with every action star you could imagine. Well, if you grew up in the 80s. If you, if you grew up in the 80s, or even kind of the 90s, but yeah. Yeah. 2015, we get Creed, uh, which is him coming back to the Rocky franchise, but in a mentor role. Um, he would be in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 in a small but important role in 2017. In 2020, he provided his voice as Rambo for Mortal Kombat 11. And then in 2021, he played King Shark in Suicide Squad, which I still haven't seen, but I was not expecting to read that credit. Same director as Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy. True, but also... I'm mostly familiar with King Shark from the Harley Quinn series, and there's like weird cognitive dissonance. But anyway, Sylvester Stallone is still alive today and still working. There are a number of projects that are still forthcoming. His two main lines of Rambo and Rocky are not quite done yet. It'll be interesting to see what comes next. The Muppet Show, episode 320, featuring guest star Sylvester Stallone, was produced between January 9th and January 11th, 1979. It would, pre- it would premiere in the UK on February 9th of the same year, and in the States on February 22nd. It was directed by Philip Casson. Uh, a special note, this episode was used for a scene in Rocky 3 to illustrate the celebrity of Rocky as just an in-universe character. The opening was redubbed by Jim Henson so that Kermit says the guest star was Rocky Balboa instead of Stallone. Uh, that was a pretty nice thing on Jim's part. Rocky three is the one where he fights both Hulk Hogan and Mr. T. He fought Hulk Hogan. Yeah. It's like, a he plays Hulk Hogan plays a character named Thunderlips. Don't think too much. Oh God. I just realized Hulk Hogan's probably starred in like five movies. And I think I've seen all of them. Sylvester Stallone, 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Stallone. Uh, everything okay? Oh yeah, I'm happy as a clam. We go into our cold open, uh, and Scooter asks Sylvester if he's okay, like Scooters want to do. Um, although Scooter might have an ulterior motive on that. We'll get back to that in a second. But Sylvester says that he's happy as a clam, and the clams come into the dressing room, who are not necessarily happy. Um, and Sylvester adds, well, happy as some clam. Which... <laughs> Miserable bastard clams. <laughs> to be fair... They're there to take grit into their mouths and then make pearls. I, it's not the best life. Oh, 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 I'm so miserable. My back hurts. I gotta work overtime tonight. Well, happy at some clan. But we get to the Muppet Show theme, and Beauregard goes into Statler and Waldorf's box, complaining about all the dust, and then there's just... Like, I think he brings the dust with him, because that's it's a lot. Yeah, he, for, he didn't wash out his duster. 
absolutely not. And then I think we might have seen this one before, but Beautiful Day Monster sneaks up on Gonzo and grabs the trumpet and plays a solo for himself. I hope he's not bullying Gonzo behind stage. Gonzo's tiny and Beautiful Day Monster is not. He could just My kids him. had a very different reaction. My kids had a very different reaction to this one. Hmm. Like one of them thought he was doing a nice thing for Gonzo and one thought he was doing something mean for Gonzo. <laughs> one of these two children is more proprietary than the other. So from there, Kermit informs the audience that tonight's guest star is Sylvester Stallone, at which point a number of groupies come in, which is going to be the backbone of our backstage story tonight. Um, and Kermit is probably wondering how they got in, which, again, there's a very simple answer to that. They just sort of scootered in. Kermit's trying to introduce a Hawaiian number for the opening act, and one of the groupies asks him if Sylvester's going to be wearing a grass skirt, at which point Kermit just loses. He's like, he's not even in this. Go away. He was definitely a sex symbol there for a while. That tracks. Um, he plays into it this episode, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We we go on, and the pigs and the penguins sing a song called Hawaiian War Chant, which, okay. Congo, the wild mountain gorilla, starts throwing coconuts at everyone. Also, why are penguins singing a Hawaiian war chant? The song uh, was actually a big band era staple, uh, intended to invoke the feeling of Hawaii. And it doesn't really feel like a war so- war chant, per se. Like, there's nothing really intimidating about it. I think they just threw that on there. But it was written by Johnny Noble and Prince Lele Ohaku. I hope I didn't mispronounce that. <laughs> I knew when I put that on there, I was going to get you. <laughs> I think it's Lele Ohaku, but I I could be wrong. Better than I would have done. It's it's an interesting number. Um, I don't think we've seen as much of Annie for a while. No, she's kind of... No, ever since the movie, she's kind of... Piggy made a backroom deal. She's like, so... I am the star of this show. Yeah. Right? No, we haven't seen as much Annie Sue. You're right. Then we go backstage and Kermit also probably had the same impression. He's like, the show's off to a decent start. And then he sees all of the groupies and he wonders what they're doing backstage. Grief, it's Sylvester Stallone's groupie brigade. Uh, uh, listen, girls, uh, you're not allowed backstage during the show. Oh, it's okay. We got passes. Yeah. yeah. Passes? We don't give out passes. I'll say you don't give them out, frog. <laughs> yeah, they cost us a bundle. Wait a minute. Who could be selling backstage passes around here? Seven, 28, 29 bucks. Scooter. Uh, yeah, boss? Which, to be fair, is probably more than Scooter's made in the last few weeks, and he's just making lemonade. I did some quick math. That means he's charging $7.25 for each pass. Have we adjusted that for inflation? No. Kermit tells the groupies that they're not going to see Stallone. And Scooter, ever enterprising and probably a really good improviser, just tells them that he wants them to stay right there so they can see Sylvester up close. You know what? I I think Scooter's... No, yeah, Scooter's definitely a weasel in this. (laughs) Yeah, no, there's no... Scooter's Scooter's kind of a sociopath. But, you know, he could be more harmful as a sociopath. Right now, he's just trying to make a quick buck. So we go to a gladiator sketch, which has Rolf in the place of Joaquin Phoenix. Where Sylvester is supposed to fight a cowardly lion who sings a song called Let's Call the Whole Thing Off. I say I'll fight you. And I'll say I'll beat you. I'll say I'll beat you. And I say I'll eat you. Fight you. Beat you. Bite you. Eat you. Let's call the whole thing off. 
It is a George and Ira Gershwin song from 1937 um, from the film Shall We Dance, starring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And the note that I made for this was basically that it's straight out of the Wiz, which I'm sure I've made Wiz comparisons on here before. But that lion. Oh, if you like Plato, I like Pluto. Yeah, well, I'll give up Plato and stick with Pluto and Mickey and Goofy. He commits to it. Like, I wasn't sure if he was just going to do the I'm a tough guy thing, but he's he buys into the bit. He's like, this is what I'm doing. I'm here to do it. Let's do it. Gotta remember, the dude is first and foremost an actor. Oh, yeah. Over over all the other stuff, he starts off as an actor. The only thing I found very disconcerting in this is Rolf chanting, kill him. There's that point where, like, because when Rolf gives the thumbs down for for Sly to kill the lion, Mm -hmm. and then you start hearing Rolf go, kill him, kill him. And you're like, what? Oh, yeah. Grizzly. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? I did jump a little bit when the lion took a bite out of Stallone's ankle as well. I was like, oh, wow, that's... I didn't see that going there. Way to go, guys. No, they, they end up uh, singing a duet together to get themselves out of the fight, basically. I think this works because Stallone commits to it. Mm-hmm. Is he a great singer? No. But does he sing? Yeah. Yeah. I'm an actor. They're telling me to act this way, so... Um, this is what I'm going to do. And it's also playing into the fact that he's Rocky, right? Instead of a boxing ring, it's a gladiatorial ring, but a boxing ring is just a modern gladiatorial ring. Oh, yeah. He's a prize fighter. It was good. We go backstage again where Scooter is trying to work the problem. Um, Little bastard. Because he knows which buttons to push with Kermit, which is how he got Kermit to sign the uh, marriage license a few episodes back. But he tells the girls to follow his lead. Kermit, realizing what Scooter's done. Scooter! It's time we had a serious talk. Boss, I understand you don't want these groupies backstage. That's true. I understand you're angry with me for letting them in. That's true, too. Well, I wouldn't have if they weren't just so desperate to see you. And Kermit, loving flattery as he does, suddenly doesn't have a problem with it anymore, which feels weird. (laughs) I don't think there's anything to be weird about it. Adulation. Kermit's not immune to it. They're not there to entertain Sylvester's wit. They're there to look at his body. That's true. One of them begs him to touch her later. Uh, I think Kermit's absolutely a hypocrite here, and that makes him human or frog. (laughs) It's not easy being green. Although, as the scene ends, one of the girls does say, who was that green guy? Which is just rough. I think she kind of dug Kermit. Is that saying like, hey, that was I don't know. I read that as she came to the Muppet show, she saw him on stage doing all the stuff. He was clearly in charge. And everyone knows who Kermit the Frog is at this point, except for this particular woman who only has eyes for Sly. Who was that small green man? From there, we go into the guest star's dressing room, which... Can we talk about the pose that Sylvester Stallone adopts as he's talking to the groupies? Gotta show off the guns, man. That's our story and we're sticking to it. Um, Uh but he's sitting there until Scooter comes into the room and Scooter doesn't get the chance to explain the situation. The girls are just like, we've waited long enough. Let's go. really a fighter i uh, made a movie about fighting but i like to uh, work out and keep in shape and sylvester's game he's like oh yeah this might be you know the best day of these women's lives or what have you and this happens to him all the time this is just tuesday for him but he talks about fighting and how he likes to work out and they ask him to, to demonstrate a few punches this is a jab this is a one-two <laughs> 
This is a big combination. One, two, and here it comes. And discovers that the punching bag in his dressing room is actually alive and can talk. And like, it's just got this flattened nose that it's a real gross looking Muppet. (laughs) I'm also pretty sure it's a masochist, but also it would have been facing him as he punched it. So there's no way that he doesn't know that those eyes are staring at him unless they were like, I don't know, closed and fully present in the moment or something. But he seems surprised. Right. Maybe he was just looking at the women as he punched, but that's not a way to punch. I, li- I like this number where he does his little flex with his muscles. <laughs> but but yeah, the one whatnot girl comes in and she's like, will you touch me? Will you touch me? Will you touch me? He like just touches her on the arm and she's like, ah, yeah, it didn't take Keith a Stapleton up in here. <laughs> um, from there, we we meet a couple of new characters. And my my note for this is what happens when you cross Benson Honeydew with Fosdy Bear, which. Yep. Um, but we meet Professor Albert Flan, who presents Otto, the automatic entertainer, which is a robot comedian who buzzes and whirs and then explodes in the middle of a joke. Um, this. <laughs> wow, we're sure having some fun tonight, huh? <laughs> but look, who's this? It's Otto, the automatic entertainer. <laughs> Hi there, Otto. <laughs> no, come back, come back. <laughs> yeah. Well, say hello to the nice boys and girls, Otto. Hello, nice boys and girls. Yeah, this doesn't 100% work for me. Like, I think the performance on Flan is pretty good. It's kind of like awkward, unsure of himself. From there, we go to our UK spot, which features Floyd, Dr. Teeth, and Zoot performing a song called Lady Be Good. Uh, This is another George and Ira Gershwin track uh from the 1924 broadway musical of the same name but i i'm always happy to see dr teeth and the guys play like this i don't feel worse for having seen this bit no it's a little low-key but it's enjoyable yeah um from there we go back to sly's does sly spend a lot of time outside of his dressing room i feel like he's just like waiting for people to come to him he's in there working out and stuff you know who knows rumor has it that there are a bunch of groupies loose in the theater oh really yeah you uh, think I'm safe here? Yeah, I think you can rest here. Mm. You know, I noticed when you when you came here, you didn't arrive with much baggage. Yeah, that's me. I travel light, no yeah. baggage on the yeah, go. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> Traveling light, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, if you need anything, you just let me know, huh? I would watch a whole movie that was just Sly and Link. Would that just be his answer to twins? <laughs> yeah, Link will be, be like Danny twins. DeVito. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I I just thought they were very funny together, that's all. Oh, yeah, they're great together. Well, thanks a lot, Link. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. For instance, I mean, if you wanted my aftershave lotion, it's in the right-hand drawer. Well, thanks, Link, but I don't. Yeah, my cologne is in the left drawer. Well, thank you, Link. And the scented body talc is above the mirror. Well, Link, you sure treat yourself well, you know that? Oh, can't complain, you know. Link uh, doesn't smell very good, nor is he particularly good at keeping in shape, which is why he ends the scene with a black eye that I will affirm Sylvester did not give him. No, he didn't. But when I first saw that screenshot, I absolutely thought that was the case. This, this scene also has one of my favorite lines of the episode is hello. Hello, Sylv. Are you decent? No, but my folks were. Come on in. (laughs) (laughs) That was nice. I like that line a lot. I don't think we've seen Sam this episode, but he tries to stop Beauregard from going on stage and Bo assists, or he insists that he's there to help with the number, to which Sam says, I didn't know you were musical, which Bo isn't. That would be interesting to find out he had a hidden musical talent with, like, bagpipes or something. The song that they're playing is William Tell Overture, and 
there are certain associations that come up when you hear the name William Tell. The William Tell Overture is a famous classical piece by Rossini for the 1829 opera Guillaume Tell. It's also best known as the theme to the Lone Ranger TV show in the 1930s. Appropriately enough, someone tries to shoot an apple off of Beauregard's head at the end of the section, and it ends better for him than it ends for most people that decide to play William Tell. It, it ends better for him than the last time the Muppets did William Tell. Remember the dude with his head with the... William oh, that's Sh- true. I forgot they already did that. Yeah. 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 This is just a little little beat. Not, not much to it. From there, we go to Veterinarian's Hospital, where one of the Hawaiian pigs from the initial sketch for the Hawaiian war chant is the patient. Time once again for Veterinarian's Hospital. Hey, when are we on? The continuing story of a quack who's gone to the dogs. It's a standard Veterinarian's Hospital, although I will say that this time it doesn't begin with Piggy getting intoxicated so much as her asking when it starts. (laughs) Yeah, I like that too. Oh, we're on. I can't remember the setup for the joke, but the punchline was no great shakes. And I remember having an audible laugh at that. uh, Piggy asked why she wasn't in the opening Hawaiian number because she can hula. And Rolf says, I've seen you hula. You're no great shakes. That's it. There's also a Hawaii five O joke in here. Uh It ends with a Hawaii five O joke, which like would have been topical then, which I guess Hawaii five O is still on the air. Now the new series, a rare contemporary reference i would say i think a patient misses hawaii he's homesick how can he be homesick when he's right here sick <laughs> i mean he misses his home in hawaii oh i can fix that hey patient yeah watch this mm-hmm. <laughs> what is that swing bombs uh, we go backstage again and kermit tries to compliment ralph but Miss Piggy says they must have used every dumb Hawaiian joke in the book. At which point the Hawaiian pig takes offense and tells Miss Piggy, you'll be hearing jokes, or you'll be hearing from my friend, my friends on No Man. And Kermit asks where No Man is, and the pig replies, No Man is an island, which was a clever joke, but I... No Man is an island. I chuckled. Um, From there we go to Fozzie's comedy acts, which Fozzie's been jazzing up his act a little bit more recently. Like, we haven't seen him go out and do standard stand-up for a, a minute. Uh, but in this case, he's combining magic. If at first you don't succeed, eventually you got to give up. All creative processes are iter- uh, iterative. Why is it so hard to say iterative? And Fozzie can't find a lady to saw in half for his magician's act. Yes, sir. Fozzie the magician. Ah, uh, a box. There's a box. Ha ha ha. Say, uh, who was that box I saw you with last night? That was no box. That was my luggage. <laughs> At which point he's going to Kermit because he's like, he doesn't know what to do. And Kermit's like, I've got a lady for you. And he's like, great. Is she, she pretty? And Kermit says no, but she's willing, which got a laugh out of me for the wrong reason. But I was like that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I was like, this is the 70s. That's absolutely something someone would have said. It turns out the lady in question is Otto, uh, who we saw earlier this episode. Um, and Twazi ever happy to work the problem, starts getting ready to saw into Otto. But Albert Flan comes in to warn him. All right. Sawing a uh, thing in half. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shut up. That's the main power cables. 
Se va. Is a bit too late because Otto explodes again, since that's primarily going to be what Otto does. And Fozzie gets electrocuted because he's sawing into a electronically powered thing with a saw. I like when Fozzie's like, "I'm going to now saw into this thing in half." <laughs> this thing. Yeah. It was like a, it was a really short but really tidy one. From here, we get a uh, Sylvester's final number, which is for him and the Muppets to sing a song called "A Bird in a Gilded Cage." which was originally written by Arthur J. Lamb and Harry Von Tilzer. Uh, it's one of the more popular songs from 1900. It's another Tin Pan Alley song. It was like the highest selling sheet music of the year 1900, I read. <laughs> this is an emo track. Like if this came out in 2003. <laughs> the ballroom was filled with fashion's throng. It shone with a thousand lights. And there was a woman who passed along the fairest of all the sights. A girl to her lover then softly cried, There's riches at command. But she married for wealth and not for love, Though she lives in a mansion grand. She's only a bird in a gilded cage, A beautiful sight to see, sight to see. This is something that you're either going to hear from Alkaline Trio or My Chemical Romance, and it's weird to hear it coming out of Sylvester Stallone's mouth. It's just all he needs is a little bit of guy liner. He's already in the Panic in the Dicks, or he's already in a Panic at the Disco sort of like outfit. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. But it gets everyone. He does like, look pretty hipster. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But everyone starts crying, including Statler and Waldorf. Well, they love these old songs. In the churchyard, just at eve, when sunset adorned the west, and I looked at the people who come to grieve, for loved ones now laid to rest. A tall marble monument marked the grave of one who had been fashion's queen, and I thought she's happier here at rest than to have people say, when seen, she's only a bird in a gilded cage. They do, and it's not a happy song. <laughs> like, no, it's a no, it's not bird in a gilded cage. No, it's a, it's a classic. Yeah, I, I mean, it plays on some pretty standard tropes, but it's it's an effective song. I um, mean, he does like I don't know if I would buy an album of Sylvester Stallone singing, but he does a decent job with it. No, he, he does a good job. I like that he does a little talk singing with it. What it reminded me of, and it's not an Irish song, but it reminded me of an Irish wake type of thing. I think mm -hmm. it's what they were going for, you know, drinking and singing and crying. Do notice, though, no alcohol touches anyone's lips during the scene. It's really weird to see Gonzo holding a beer. Last episode, we had a guy smoking in a room full of babies, but I guess the values were different then. <laughs> yeah. They were worried about it playing in dry counties. I thought this was a nice way to end the episode. It's not spectacular. It's not underwhelming right it's it's a solid ending stallone like this this episode in general is something that i would consider a middle of the road thing which isn't damning it with false praise it does exactly what it's supposed to do stallone does a good job with what he's given and they they play to him pretty well it's just yeah it's it'll probably make a list in some fashion as we go on through the fifth season i don't know how clearly i'm gonna remember this episode that's fair yeah i i, I enjoy this one quite a bit i think the main 
I think the best thing about this episode is how game Stallone is. He did really well as a guest star. Next time. What the cluck? So uh, in one or two weeks, we will be back talking about episode 321. We're going to get real country next week, Nick, just to just to let you know. I know we've been there before, but next week's going to get real country. Country, pop, folk, singer, songwriter Roger Miller, and then also uh, kind of classic country duo Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. The, the town I went to high school in was really famous for some sort of affiliation with Roy Rogers. That's going to be interesting. We'll get into those as we finish out, get close to finishing out season three, which I cannot believe, but uh, we're not there yet. So until then I'm Chad, I'm Nick. And thank you for listening. A feat of lunatic daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson music by Seth Hodowitz and a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Well, they say all good things come to an end. What's that got to do with this show? <laughs> <laughs>